I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. I am Andy Johnson, but this is not my episode. This is actually Garrett's podcast. Um, he's on a doctor-ordered vocal rest, um, so I'm subbing in just for the intro and the and the uh, advertisements from our partners. I would, uh, you know, I'd say that. A vocal ordered rest is one of the worst things that could happen to a podcaster. I think uh, I'm starting to think about injuries that can derail my life and and something with my vocal cords would be a problem. Um, So anyway, this is an exciting series. I haven't listened to this podcast and I am quite excited to listen to it. Um, It was an idea Garrett had and I'm, I'm fascinated about the topics of this is he wanted to do a short series over this holiday break and maybe into early next year, on a few of the greatest and most influential golf courses in the world. So naturally, the first course up is the old course at St. Andrews. Um, So he's going to go into depth on the old course, I think on the history and architecture of it. Um, His guest for this episode is Scott McPherson. Scott is a golf course architect and historian, and he's the author of the book St. Andrews, The Evolution of the Old Course. So Scott just came out with a new edition of this book, and you can purchase a copy of your own at scottmcphersongolfdesign.com. That's scottmcphersongolfdesign.com. So we're going to get to this interview, but first, let's talk about our partner, Fat Cork. Uh, Fat Cork is a, you know, much like the old course, like a wonderful, uh, you know, champagne that's super unique and... um, a kind of a pilgrimage. If you're into champagne or if you know somebody that's into champagne, you should be getting them fat cork. Um, we are here in the holiday season. There's a couple things. You should have a nice little stock of champagne for your holiday parties. If uh, if you're going to holiday parties, it's an awesome host gift. And then also, if you or a loved one loves champagne, a great holiday gift is Fat Cork's membership. Um, they are golf lovers over at Fat Cork. The, the unique value prop of Fat Cork is that they get their champagne from the growers directly. Um, so think about craft beer, uh, you know, craft coffee. This is really like craft uh, champagne. They come from the growers. This, these are the most unique grapes you can get. And, you know, with the membership, you can get, you know, a denomination of bottles based off how much you want. You know, they have three tiers shipped to your house every quarter. This makes an awesome gift. If you join the Champagne Club now, you will be, you know, and use the promo code GOLF, you'll get a bunch of goodies. You'll get a cork, uh, like a cork Seamus head cover, a a couple stoppers, which are awesome stoppers. They make the best stoppers on the market that I've ever used, as well as a uh, bottle sleeve that, like, if you want to go on a picnic with a champagne bottle, this thing's perfect. You don't have to bring a cooler. You just have to use the sleeve. 
So that's for the club. And if you're just looking for bottles, if you want some bottles for whether it's New Year's, um, you know, go to fatcork.com, use the promo code GOLF, and you get free shipping on your order. So that's not insignificant. You know, you're talking twenty to eighty dollars for free shipping. Um, and they are uh they're great people, awesome customer service. Uh fatcork.com. That's F-A-T-C-O-R-K dot com. Um, and thank you for their support. Now let's get to Scott McPherson. All right. So Scott, your book is this incredibly detailed account of the old course's evolution. How did you first get familiar with St. Andrews and then what prompted you to dive so deeply in, into the history like this? Oh, I, I'm a fan of the old course like everybody else, you know, and, 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 a, and a visitor in many ways like everybody else. My grandparents were Scottish and they'd immigrated to New Zealand and my dad was born in New Zealand and we come back occasionally to Scotland, and I think in the eighties I came with mum and dad, and we, you know, we got to the first tee, and you know, I was a teenager at that point, and there just there wasn't the chance to play that that particular day. But I think it, I think it lit a spark that when I got to the university age, St Andrews as a university was kind of on my radar. It, it wasn't going to happen, but it was on my radar as a you know this dream opportunity, possibility. Um, so I, I think I've always had a knowledge of Scotland and, and of St. Andrews. And, you know, when I decided that I really wanted to get into the golf design industry, I went to university, I did a horticulture degree, and I won a scholarship and went to California and UC Davis and did landscape architecture, which was great, particularly the environmental side of golf course design, which is, um, which is what I was interested in then and still am now 30 years later. Um, I, I ended up my first, I guess, real job. Um, my parents were on a farm and I designed a path three on the farm and all that sort of stuff. But the first sort of real job was working for Peter Thompson, five times open champion in, in Melbourne, in Australia. And, uh, you know, it was great. I mean, he's an incredible man, was an incredible man, a great ambassador. I mean, obviously a great player, but um, very warm human being. And, you know, he had a house in St. Andrews. He designed the Lynx, uh, the Duke's course in St. Andrews. And so there was a number of conversations in the office around about St. Andrews. And, you know, it just kept reinforcing it in my mind that, yeah, I really need to go back. So there was a dip in the fortunes of um, the Peter Thompson Design Company, mainly because we had a lot of work in Malaysia. And there was sort of a dip in, I think there was a coup in the, in the, in the mid-90s. And so I was one of the young guys and, you know, it was sort of put to me that maybe this is a good time to do some traveling. And I thought, yeah, actually, maybe this is a good time to do some traveling and go to St. Andrews. So Peter very kindly wrote me a letter saying, look, if you get to St. Andrews, uh, call the RNA. Um, a friend of mine is the secretary of the RNA, Peter um, Michael Benalek, very recently passed away, very sadly. And that was obviously to Sir Michael Benalek now. Um, anyway, so I do this. So I... I you know, this kid in the candy store, right? Rock into St. Andrews with this letter in my hand, call the RNA and uh, say, look, you know, um, can I have a meeting with uh, with Michael Penalek? You know, an introduction by Peter Thompson. Sure, I mean, Michael was incredible. Yeah, you know, next week, come on down to the RNA and in the, in the trophy room there, sit down. And he said, you know, what, do you, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I'd like to stay in design if possible. And he said, well, actually, they're planning on building a new golf course just up the road. You know, I might be able to, get you introduced to the people doing it. They're here for a meeting next week. And it was actually, you know, Gene Sarazen turned up. So once I knew Gene Sarazen was going to turn up, I went down to one of the local bookstores and bought, you know, 30 years of championship golf 
and you know I couldn't wait to meet him because he you know invented the sandwich, incredible guy. So took this reprinted version uh, and got him to sign it, and uh, and got to meet the new developer and the new architect, an American guy called Dennis Griffiths. And they said, hey, this is cool. You know, we don't know if we're going to get permits to build the golf course, but you know, what are your plans? And I said, well, you know, I'm going to stay around for a bit. I had a New Zealand friend who was doing his PhD at St Andrews University, and so I thought, well, I'll stay for a bit, and you know, threw all my eggs into one basket, thinking if this if this comes off, you know, it's a dream come true. So um, you know, it took a little over a year to get the planning permits, and uh, and then I was off, offered the job as the on-site architect for the two golf courses at St Andrews, which is is now the Fairmont St Andrews. It was St Andrews Bay back in. Uh, 1999 when I started on site but in that in that year the intervening year you know I had to to earn some money right so um my New Zealand friend said hey do what we do just caddy on the old course you know it's easy and I had done a little bit of caddying on the Australasian tour so I was you know capable of lugging a bag around but residential caddying and tour caddying are you know two very different things and um you know you're sort of going around and you know we're doing sort of 11 10 or 11 rounds a week you know, I think I ended up doing about 300 rounds. And, you know, you go round and round, often with different caddies, but there would be caddies that you'd see again and again, and they'd tell very similar stories, and you know, in the hope to ingratiate themselves with whoever their, <laughs> their player was to get a bigger tip at the end of it. Um, in fact, Tip Anderson, you know, legendary caddy, was one of the caddies that was still alive at the time, and, and I did a few loops with him, and, and fortunately his caddy notes, for, I think Palmer is, in, is one of the things in the book he gave me at the time. But the caddies would say, you know, all the bunkers were made by sheep, and, you know, the, these things have never changed, and, the, you know, the railway was put in and make up a year, you know. And I'm thinking, this isn't right. You know, this is, you know, I've just been with Peter Thompson and I've had a great library in Melbourne. And I was going through all, through all the books thinking, oh, of course, it's changed quite a bit, but I had no proof. So, you know, once the winter months came along, I sort of went into the different libraries and I bought different books and I started to put together a spreadsheet thinking, I've got to try and track all the lengths of all the holes. And I thought the only way I could do it was really the Open Championship, um, the first one being 1872. Uh, uh, is that right? Um, and 1873. 73, um, yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, it's one of those, 71, back. 72, 73, one of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and I'm thinking, there's got to be, there has to be quite a lot of change here, and, but I, I needed to be able to prove it. So I started with that, that first open and went through and tried to get, uh, yeah, 1873, um, all the opens. Very, very early years, there was not much information. Uh, in fact, no information. You know, they'd track the results, but they wouldn't track the course changes. And it wasn't really a, until I got into the 1890s there was sort of an inkling of how whole longs, how long the holes were. In 1895, it became really clear that was the first open where they had the hole links, and certainly by 1900 they had it. So I, I filled out all the spreadsheet, and I started to notice certain periods where there was very deliberate change. And I thought, well, hang on, I have to two or three yards didn't feel like deliberate, so I made up. 11 yards, if I'd noticed there was 11 yards, more or less, because actually holes were getting shorter sometimes as well, I started to color code these hole changes. Once I went through all the opens, and um, this was up until, because the first, the first edition of the book came out 2007, so I really could only get to the 2005 open. Once I got them, I, I noticed really deliberate changes around certain periods, and they all linked, interestingly enough, 
to changes in technology, mainly golf ball. And um, so you, you could see all of a sudden there was a direct correlation between uh, technology and the expansion of the old course. And I thought that was I thought that was pretty interesting. And I don't think it had been seen before. Um, certainly not in the way that I tried to document it. And you know, I had no intention to write a book. That was the irony of this whole process. It was really only f- for me to prove to myself that there had been significant changes over this period. Um, and a couple of people found out about it. And uh, George Pepper, who's a you know American, wrote a, yeah, he lived in St Andrews actually on the side of the 18th fairway. And, so he became interested in it and a couple of the journalists who were writing, getting ready for the 2005 Open. So they were starting to use my research for um, for their for newspapers or for uh, Peter Ellis used it for the Open itself. So, it, it, and you know, they, they then encouraged me to turn it into a book, which was great on one level, but, you know, ended up being another two-year project and endless hours of sleep, sleepless nights trying to combine it all together. But I became kind of determined to try and find a way to make, um, to show this in a way that was easy to read and easy to understand um, in a book that had all the great plans. You know, I I obviously, for our day job, we draw plans and uh, there's so many great plans in the old course that I wanted to have a book that showed all those. And it's a very visual book because you can easily get bogged down in the numbers with, um, with St Andrews. So I wanted it to look like a coffee table book, but effectively to be a research um, piece for people who really wanted to do a deep dive into the evolution of the old course. And that's where the name came from, because it it tracks the evolution, both width and length, um, and the physical changes mainly spurred on due to technology um, over a key 200 period. So the first map of the old course was 1821. And that's really where the book starts. Um, and it goes now with this new edition, it goes up to, um, well, actually earlier, it goes up to 2023. That follows the open up to last year. And then there's bits that happened post open that are also included in the book. That's the, that's the short version. <laughs> the short version of how the book came to be. Now, that's all yeah. very interesting. Why don't we dig into a little bit of the history? As you say, sure. the book really properly starts in 1821, I believe it is, with one of the first really detailed or informative plans of the old course, or it was not then called the old course, of course, it was St. Andrew's links or, or some version of that or Pilmore links. Um, but in any case, I, I'd like to maybe start with a general sketch of what the course was like in its very early days. I know there's not much evidence, but just briefly, if you could take me back to the beginnings of golf in St. Andrew's, how early was the game played on those links and what information do we have about what the course was like in its early pre 19th century days? There's not a lot of information. And I guess one of the things I've tried to do in this book is be quite factual because it's really easy to get into writing about things without great information yeah speculation and romance and generalities about what the course was like in the 1700s we know though that it that it went from 22 to 18 holes that's one thing that that kind of happened in this period yeah correct so so that's in the in the mid 1700s so it's quite a long way before the first map came along i think we know that the, the golf was very hard 
<laughs> that the course was very difficult. You know, there was no concept of fairways. You know, it was all through the green. You know, it's a really, it's, it's, it's interesting terminology when you dip into that sort of stuff. Because I could talk to people today and say, well, you know, there weren't fairways. What do you mean there weren't fairways? You know, well, there weren't mowers. You know, <laughs> what do you mean there weren't mowers? Well, it was, I mean, there was sheep on the golf course until 1946. You know, I think there was postcards still being put out with images of sheep. So the game has come and the golf course has come so far that it's very difficult for people to even visualize what golf was like. I think one of the, one of the, one of the takeaways from the book, and I might be jumping here, here to here a little bit, but one of the takeaways for the book for me as a golf course architect was how we look at a golf course now. So um, one of the ways that we look at golf courses now is to do with greens. You know, you'll, you, you'll think of a, of a golf course and you'll go, boy, the greens are fantastic, you know, rolling really smooth. They, Maybe they, had, they were, maybe they were pretty flat or maybe they had quite a lot of contour change, whatever they might have. We talk about the greens a lot. Mm-hmm. You look at St. Andrews and you look, look back to those early plans, there is almost no mention of the greens. Some, some mention, you know, certainly when they got into double greens, there was talk about that. But there's no real detailed plans of the greens. But what there were were detailed plans of the bunkers, you know, 1836 and was the second main plan very, you know, they're getting into the detailed look at the bunkers. And other courses around Scotland and the UK were doing the same thing. You know, you could talk about Pandemonium, the bunker that was at Musselburgh, or you could go over to the Alps or Presswick, or you could go down to, you know, Royal St George's or wherever. And they would they were talking about the 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 hazards and how difficult they were and they were proud of that. It was almost like that's how they compared golf courses. Not to do with green. So that's kind of an interesting takeaway that, you know, we've moved a long way from, I mean, hazard's still important, obviously. Um, and, but they're, they're not, they're not the defining factor. They're not, you know, they're not swaying people one way or, or another in terms of where they're going to go and play next. Mm-hmm. It's not a bellwether sort of thing. And actually, I mean, you could, you could widen that out and t- talk about, you know, us as humans, right? We're made up of, I think they, I think the scientists think the human body is made up of about 59 different elements, which in their, own, in their own right are not really very important. You know, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen. You know, I think we're 60% oxygen. Now, obviously, most of that's mixed with hydrogen, so it turns into water. But each of those elements is not particularly important until you put it together in the form of a human, and then it's really important. And the old course is a bit the same. That the elements are not not particularly important. A revetted bunker here, a tee there, you know, a green over there, a wall there, gorse here, individually don't really mean much. But it's the way that they're combined at St Andrews on the si- on the sand with the wind that you know have turned it into this just incredible golf course. You know, and that's why it can never be replicated. You know, you could never think, right? Well, we, you know, people have tried. You know, we're just going to build you know, the redan- um, the 17th hole that we're going to build the 11th hole and do that. Well, they never play the same. So, yeah, there's, I think there's broader takeaways with, with the whole, with the whole experience of St. Andrews that make it so unique. And I, and I hope that comes out in the book that we dive into the details, but ultimately it's the overall picture that gives us this just most incredible place. And that overall picture has really evolved over time, starting with 
that course you were talking about earlier, which didn't really have distinguished greens or distinguished fairways or distinguished tees for that matter. Those evolved at a, a particular point in the course's history. And so I think that one thing that people need to adjust their perspective about when they think about the early old course is that it's not like we draw golf holes now. When we draw golf holes now, we draw a little tee, we draw a fairway, and we draw a green. But the golf course wasn't understood that way, I don't think, in the 1700s or even for much of the 19th century. And so that's a that's just a, a very interesting thing to know and to remember. I'd like to get to the old course as it was in sort of what we could call documented history. And that really starts in the the early 1800s, 1820s on. If you were to take a modern person and plop them down on the old course in the 1830s, say, before the gutta percha ball entered the picture and started to motivate some change, what would be the surprising thing, the most surprising thing to this person about what they would see on that golf links? It's a great question, isn't it? If you were dropped from the moon, what would you what would you see? Or drop or drop from the twenty first century, right? You're a golfer in the twenty first yeah. century. You're used yeah. to what golf courses look like now, or you're used to even what the old course looks like now. What uh, would be surprising about that that earlier version of the documented old course? Yeah, I, I I would say that one of the things you'd notice quite clearly is the lack of defined edges. So if we think of mowers and what they do, they leave an edge, and you know that that wouldn't have happened because they they just weren't there then they weren't they weren't doing it in that sort of way so i think you've got to th- almost imagine this place where grasses are longer and hairier and the, there's a lot of, more of a blurred area blurred um perimeter between the different play zones I, I often say to people i say you've got to think of golf in those older periods as a cross country adventure there was a starting point and there was an end point and there was really no definition in between in the book, in the very towards the end, I do a comparison between 1900 golf and 2020 golf. And one of the difficult things in doing those side by side diagrams was trying to blur the <laughs> trying to blur these edges to not even define really where the green is. We have to, but it was trying to not show that. You know, I think there was, I think there are critical periods, and you've you've chosen an interesting one there. And and I'm and I move it about 30 years forward too. I tend to think that. Arguably, the most important period in the evolution of the old course is between about 1850 and 1870. And that, the gutta was in play at that point. But what happened to the old course was the double halt, the double greens came into play. Um, 1856, 1857, the RNA <clears throat> allowed the, all the greens to have double holes cut in them. There'd only been one prior to that because the game was grow- growing in popularity. Um, the, the railway just sort of started in St Andrews, so there's a lot more people coming, a lot busier golf course. Uh, old Tom returned to St Andrews in 1864. Um, so then there's the starting to be the expansion, the building of the 18th Green, the first Open Championship, 1873. You know, so I think there's a key period there where it goes from that kind of ruggedy sort of golf course, not you know, and you've got to remember it's free, right? There's there's no green fees here people just go and play golf as organized matches no no maintenance budget basically no that's right um so you know it goes from that and then and then i think it hits this 
the RNA start to, and it's, and it's to do with um, golf growing in popularity. And the train is a big, a big part of this picture, bringing people into the town and parking them effectively right next to the 17th green there. Um, so, yeah, and then old Tom coming back, and he does obviously incredible work on the conditioning of the golf course. You know, they're all adding sand everywhere, starting to move flags around, uh, taking holes out of play, you know, taking heather out, relaying with turf, just in constantly increasing the quality of the links through that period, uh, right through to then having the first, uh, the first open in St Andrews. So you've been going around since 1860, but that was the first one in St Andrews. Um, and then right the way through. So for me, and, and the book talks about it a little bit, it's a new, but it's a, it's a new addition to this book, which uh, new information we've found out since the first edition came out, which was to do what with the um, expansion of the area around the Swilkin Burn, the first green, the 17th green. And it had always been a mystery. It was a mystery to me until last year that we never quite knew how the first green came to play, came into play, the, you know, the, we knew that there'd been a change and the, the thought was that it was a green that was built a bit like the 18th green was a, a, it was an act. It was almost commissioned and it was built and it was opened and there was a date around that. Whereas the first green was, it was never quite so clear. And I think what has happened now, and this came to light due to a court case to do with the, the, the Himalayas, a trespassing case to do with, um, a man who felt that he could play on the Himalayas uh, at any time he, he liked. And actually, he had a very good case. He ended up losing the court case. But what, what happened was we, had, we got 90 pages of testimonial from old Tom, some of the leading players of the day, uh, the RNA, uh, and including washerwomen who were working in the burn and, uh, you know, doing clo cleaning clothes in the burn. So we became, we got a very clear picture of kind of what was happening around that area. And and I think the re I think the reality was that the first green evolved. There was um, the the secretary of the RNA at the time, a chap called Stuart Grace, gave evidence very early on in the I think it was two or three day case that the the the, the new hole, second hole in that double green was cut closer to the burn and towards the sea. So there'd been some debate about whether the seventeenth green was ever a double green. And for the first time, we now know and we have it. And evidence from the chap who was secretary from about 1842 right through to this court case in the 1880s. You know, he was in position for four, a little over 40 years. So from when the mandate was put in in 1856 for the double greens right through to this court case. So, yeah, he, he, he made it very clear that firstly, that the 17th green was a double green. And then we hear all this evidence about where the balls were landing, about um, the... The, the washing being laid out over the, I say fairways, out over that area and then being put on the gorse to dry. And it was the trampling effect really of these long um, agricultural grasses that started to prepare what is now the first green area for becoming a green. And it was, it was Tom Morris who took advantage of that when he was moving around and trying to look at player safety ball strike issues with the 17th green moving that green away. And we, I mean, we even know at one point that first, the, the first hole played as a par three, the, the, the hole wasn't even over the burn, it was cut short of. But there was just a lot of change, you know, it, we, they weren't, we, we seem quite stuck now and kind of where holes are and where they need to play from and play to. But there wasn't those restraints in that period between the, you know, the 1850s, 60s, 70s and, and, um, 
until the the right hand course got uh, more established with the with the new tees. Right. So okay, there's there's a lot in there. There's a lot of detail here. What you're documenting is some of the changes that happened in the middle of the 19th century. I, I want to get a general picture of what was happening to the course at this time, because one surprising thing to this hypothetical modern person that might be plopped down on the old course as it was before the advent of the gutta percha ball and the coming of the railroad, one surprising thing to that person would be that the old course was a lot narrower back then, as in the playing area, the playing corridor was bordered by kind of wild grasses and gorse. And the space in which you could reasonably play your ball was narrower than it is now. And players would play essentially the same path out and back. They would play to the same holes. There weren't double greens yet. And so coming back, you would play to the same hole that you had played to on the way out on that particular green. So that changed over the course of the mid 19th century. And the course became more what it is now very wide with these double greens and defined courses for going out and coming back. You don't come back on the same path that you go out. So how generally was that change made? Why was it made? Yeah, you're right. Absolutely right. I mean, it would have been a very narrow golf course originally. And so the widening of the golf course was a response to increased play, popularity, ball safety, and the you know the key one of the key areas with the the widening of the course was around that first eighteenth hole area as we know it today, uh, and the reclaiming of the first fairway from from the sea, which took place over a, over a longer period, sort of a mid eighteen hundreds to 1900 and the Bruce embankment was a big key part of that. It's, it's really hard to imagine these days, but the, the sea that comes up, if you've ever been to St. Andrews, there's a, you know, the RNA clubhouse and up behind the clubhouse is a car park known sort of locally as the museum car park. Well, that never existed. So that the, the sea, which is there by the sort of sea world could have flow, f- flowed up over the beach and kind of around that right-hand side. So when that Bruce embankment came, it broke that opportunity for the sea to get through that area and reclaimed a significant amount of land. So that was a that was a really key part. But the widening of the golf course more broadly was due to popularity. And you, you know the, the the cleanest example to give is the Fifth Fairway, where previously the you know the hole would have played up to the Elysian Fields, which is the fourteenth fairway, and then you would have played across to what's the fifth green. You would have had to hit your drive across the Hell Bunker. Correct. For people who are familiar right. with the Hell Bunker and its position on the now fourteenth hole, the old fifth hole, which players at the time thought was a really great hole, you would uh. hit your drive over the Hell Bunker, and it was quite a carry back then. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So you had to cross it twice. You had to you had, had to over it up on the Elysian Fields, and then as you went along, you'd strike the Beardies, and then you'd have to go across the Beardies to get onto you know the the fifth green or the which is the double green, and that was the first of the double greens. And you know you start to think about the difficulty of that shot, you know, with hickory clubs, with these gutty golf balls potentially, and you know what we have now. It, 
and there was obviously the sandwich, you know, we we <laughs> we talked about Gene Sarazen earlier, right? There was no sandwich in those days. So they had these clubs that they could get out with. But it was a lot more difficult, incredibly more difficult. You know, so you hear, hear these stories of, you know, guys going around and hitting 70, 77, you know, course record, young Tom Morris going around and doing it sequentially, you know, in the high 70s or maybe 80. You think, oh, it's pretty good, but we're comparing it with modern day technology in these wide fairways. That was it. Those were incredible scores in in those days, based on the difficulty. And of course, coming back, you know, you'd be teeing off, and the rules were changing. So part of the story is a constant changing of the rules. So originally, you know, you were sort of within a club length or two of the original hole, and then it went to four, and then eight, six, twelve, and then ultimately that rule was changed, and they could build um, teeing grounds. But if we if we go to that period when the rule was still within, say you know, eight club lengths of the hole, then from what we now know as the 14th hole, you're coming back across the Beardies, which are pretty much out of play on golf, but they would be really right in play then and on your line of play up to the Elysian Fields. And then you've got to get over Hell Bunker and the other bunkers around it and then, and then get onto the green. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. Incredibly difficult game. And, and I don't think even today I'll, I'll talk to people and I'll say, look, it's very easy to think golf is a fairly easy game. You only need to go out to any golf course on any particular day and see how hard it is for most people to play and to play well. Well, you amplify that by 10 times or more. And that's how, you know, hickory golf would have been, I think, in, in that sort of 19th century period. Hey, let's take a quick break to talk about our partner, the USGA. Speaking of last minute uh, gifts for the golfer in your life, I've got a great gift. You know, if you've got somebody that's impossible to give gifts to, give them the gift of the USGA membership. They will receive great benefits like the members only hat, the bag tag, and a subscription to the USGA's golf journal. And the game of golf will get the support it needs to continue to thrive for generations to come. You know, this includes all the turf grass research they're doing, all the stuff they're doing around, you know, growing the game in underdeveloped areas of the country. You know, really, uh, the USGA is is much more than just the people that put on the tournament or the people that are making rules changes. They are doing they have so many great programs, whether it's, you know, turf grass or, you know, how to figure out how to get more people playing golf. Uh, Gift a USGA membership today by visiting usga.org slash fried egg. That's usga.org slash fried egg. Thanks to our partners from the USGA. And now back to Scott McPherson. One striking realization I had as I was reading your book and looking at the evidence of what the course was like and, and how it turned into the course we're familiar with today is that a lot of the bunkers that we now know as kind of center line strategic hazards. There's room to play around them. If you're in them, you're not in good shape, but you can go to the side of them, play safely away from them, but you get a little reward if you play closer to them and you can kind of shorten the hole or get a better angle or something like that. It's the classic idea of a strategic bunker, but on the early old course, a lot of these bunkers were effectively cross bunkers. Because yep. the course was so narrow that these bunkers basically went all the way across them. So you couldn't play around them. Now, what happened with the widening 
is that you could play around them. And a different sort of spirit of the old course emerged, one that the golden age architects like Alistair McKenzie and Tom Simpson, John Lowe, really loved and thought was a feature, not a bug. But how did players initially receive this widening of the old course? Because surely it made the place easier to play, right? Yeah, so so that's great. So, you know, John Lowe, incredible thinker of the game, editor, wrote concerning golf, one of the great golf books in my mind. So he, he was saying, and I think his quote was, golf is a contest of risk. So if you think about what that actually means, it means that in every shot, you're having to balance, you know, your ability versus the weather versus the course and the hazards and the result. So those centerline hazards is the example of, say, having to get as close as you can to risk the going in them in order to get some type of reward, an easier angle to the hole, a shorter line, whatever it might have been. It's that contest of risk, which I think is one of the things that separates golf from all other sports because it's ever-present. So, you know, there was a period of time and you look at the evolution of the old course when the ball was going further and further astray and maybe it wasn't getting into trouble as much as maybe some people on the RNA committees at the time were hoping to. So there was this increase in the amount of bunkering along the periphery of the golf course, which may not have been prevalent in that 19th century, earlier mid 19th century period. And I, you know, it's still there today and it's well documented in my book. But I don't think those are the key bunkers. I think we still come back to those central bunkers. It could be, you know, principal's nose, you know, as, a, as another example. But the end hole bunkers, even on nine, you know, is still in play because you don't really want to be down the side. So there are some newer bunkers, which are still central bunkers. But, you know, Cheap's bunker was always a great target. You know, the flag was never down the right-hand side that we see it now. It was always up on top, so you needed to get left in order to have a better angle in. But, yeah, this if you think about it in that sort of way, that as a contest of risk and that the best position bunkers make the game more interesting, then I think you're starting to understand the the real essence of what the old course is. And what's so interesting is that that real essence – that we understand now about the old course. The reason we think it's such a great course because of its width and its strategic hazards and this uh, contest of risk that, that you mentioned earlier, that evolved. That wasn't there from the beginning. The course took on its width because of this response to the increased popularity. And it just happened that it turned the course into something different. I just find that completely fascinating. This wasn't necessarily by design. It just evolved this way. And people realized once it happened, wow, this is great. Yeah. And it's an interesting conversation if, you, you know, if you're sitting in, the, sitting in the pub with your friends, right? You say, well, actually, even if the golf course was, say, two or three times wider again than what it is now, it wouldn't really make a big difference to the playing of the course because you actually still have to come back to the middle. You know, in, in life, you could probably live your life on the fringes. And certainly in terms of our justice system, the, the further you head offline, you know, the greater the punishment once you end up in, a, in, in front of a judge. But in golf, 
you can't really do that. You still have to, you have to come back to the green. The green is in the middle of the court. You've got to come back at some point. So yeah, this idea that we, we target the preferred line of play, the desire line has to be the central essence of really good golf course design, you know, and that's what, I mean, that's why the old course is such a great place to learn from, right? For anybody, you know, anybody interested in golf course design or architecture, you know, you go, what, what is it that separates this course from, you know, apart from the fact that, I mean, another, it's probably another discussion for down the pub is, you know, all the greatest golfers of all time have played the old course. I mean, I can think of one great golfer who I'd call a great golfer who's not played the old golf, the golf course, the old course, um, is, is Ben Hogan. You know, never, never got to St. Andrews. And I would say is a great, but you know, with him to one side, it's tested every great golfer I, th- I can think of in the history of the game. And yet it's still providing a great test today. Uh, you can't say that about, I don't think anywhere else. Now, another thing that happened with the widening of the course is that it could start to be played both clockwise and counterclockwise. Now it's played almost exclusively counterclockwise or along the the right-hand route, right? Do we know how often the left-hand route was used in the late 1800s? And it would have to be the late 1800s because before there wasn't really a left and right. But once there came to be the possibility of a left and right, there were different ways that the players could go around the course do we have a sense of how popular the left-hand route was and and then how the right-hand route came to be the the preferred one? Yeah, I mean it was I mean it was pretty much a weekly thing. It would it would swap around that regularly. Um there was no preference for a long period of time and and really the change was just to do with spreading the wear out. You know, so that the divots were in different places um between those those periods. But what happened and again we're going to come back to technology with this one is as the new golf ball, so the, the, the gutter percha ball sort of came into play in you know, the late 18, 1800s, 1880s, came into play. It's starting to go further now. So people are getting a sense that the contest of risk might be changing. They want to try and get that back in play. So maybe we need some more tees. Okay, well, where are we going to put the tees? So now you have to make a decision, right? It's decision time. Do we go left-hand course or do we go right-hand course? You can't do them both. So if you look at, if you look at the routings for what they are, you know, the, the right-hand course as we know it, so the right-hand course is the course we know today, has only one crossing, one crossover where players cross over. So it's the seventh and the 11th holes. Whereas if you play the left-hand course or the reverse course, as we th- call it, there's two or three depending on how it's played. So from a safety point of view, that there's a greater element of risk. So I think it came down simply to, to that fact of why the right-hand course was chosen to be extended and why it is now the open course as we know it. It was literally black and white as a safety-related decision. Very interesting. Uh, what, what, what could have been, I guess? Uh, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have the, the, the road hole as, as we understand it today. Um, there are so many holes that would be different. And one of those crossovers that, that you mentioned would happen on the final hole of the course, I believe, right? Because the first hole yeah. would have to play across the Swilkenburn to the other side of the course 
to essentially the site of the road green. That's an incredible first hole. <laughs> and then to to come back, of course, you would have to play from the area of, I guess, the second tee to the 18th green that old Tom Morris built. And so it would just be a totally different course. People still occasionally play it today. The Lynx Trust offers some opportunities for for people to to do that. But it is more of a curiosity than it is uh, something that people do as part of competition, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. I've been lucky. I mean, through the years that I've been here, they've opened it up a few times and I've been lucky enough to play it a number of times. And I think next year, 2024, they're, they're going to do it for three days. Um, and and it's great that I think people get that the chance to play it in the opposite way. And, you know, you could argue there's probably a couple of holes which are maybe better in the reverse way. You know, playing 12 um, back up the hill makes more sense because you can see the bunkers. You can't see them when you play the way we play today on the right-hand course. Um, but, you know, and you could hy- hypothesize that, you know, if they were if in the 1880s when they were starting to lengthen the tees and they wanted to get rid of that crossover between, you know, on the first and 18th holes, they could have abandoned old Tom's new 18th green, which would have only been 10 or 15 years old, and built a new green you know, where the current first tee is. You know, they could have maybe done a workaround, but that's not where they were at at the time. And, you know, I, I would probably argue that they made the right decision. Whether they had to make the decision, you know, whether you believe that technology has been good and the longer ball has been good is a different debate. You know, we kind of know that, you know, around about 1900, the old course was, actually there was a big extension, they added about 200 yards. But let's just say for, for round numbers period, that in 1900, uh, it was uh, 6,300 yards, which it was. Um, you know, where, where we are today for the Open Championship last, last year, we're over 1,000 yards longer. You know, and there's been this push, you know, more recently around 2000, the new tees were put on areas that would have been considered outside the boundaries of the old course. So the second hole, it was put on the Himalayas. Once you get to 13, it was on the Eden Golf Course. And again, coming back up, 17 was in the practice range. So they pushed outside the boundaries. But if you do a parallel, and it's done in the, I do it for, in the book for fun, fun, is that the right word? <laughs> Interest <laughs> sake, as much as anything. If you look at the power of the ball, where it was in, in 1900 and where it was now, and what it would need to be, how long the old course would need to be in order to have that relative similarity, the old course would need to be about 9,000 yards long now. And there's no way, of course, you know, there's no way you could find, we could find another 1,500 or 1,700 yards to make it 9,000. I don't think actually it would be enjoyable. I think it would be a slog. It would take away a lot of the nuance. But, you, you know, back to your question about how would it play if we rolled the clock back, you know, 150 years. It's a really difficult game. And the ball's not going as far. The fairways are narrow. The grasses are wild. The rabbit's running around. The hole has been worn out. There's no hole cups. You know, there's no tin cup in the middle of the hole. You know, it's golf, but not as we know it. Now, something that you've mentioned a couple of times is the changing teeing grounds. This one way that the old course has been lengthened in response to technology. Um, Really, the Haskell ball, which came about in the early 1900s, was one of those moments that forced the old course to consider where else can we put these teeing grounds to extend the course and bring some of the key hazards back into play. 
But something that's so interesting about what you discovered about the changes at the old course in the mid 1800s is that teeing grounds weren't really a thing until a particular point in the course's evolution. You would simply take a certain number of club lengths from the hole and tee it up there. But at some point, and I believe it was old Tom Morris, they introduced distinct teeing areas. And this strikes me as a really important moment in the evolution of golf course design in general, to think of the teeing area as a designed thing. So how did that happen at St. Andrews and, and what was the significance of that move toward teeing grounds as opposed to just the sort of ad hoc tee it, you know, close to the hole? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a thesis in its own right. And I'm not going to remember all the details. I need to dive back into the book as well. Um, but yeah, certainly it was a it was the changes in the rules. So I think the idea, if you can visualize the game getting really popular, and the idea of a group standing next to the hole waiting to tee off and, and potentially waiting because there's a group in front of them. And now there's a group behind them trying to hit to that hole as well. And the area around the hole is becoming worn out because, you know, you've got players and caddies. You know, the caddies get the ball out and then they take some sand and they build a, a little raised cup for, teeing, for the, the player to tee off, the gentleman golfer to tee off. These areas are getting really worn. So I think what was happening is an evolution of the rules to try and keep up, right? Okay, we, we now need to move the place where the ball is teed further away from the current hole until it got to a point where, you know, the, the, the rule was abandoned and that you could actually create these separate teeing grounds. I can't remember the, the year off the top of my head. But what I think what we found on, and it was kind of fun on the, right next to the 13th green is this area of, you know, it's rectangular and it's level. And, you know, I think it's one of the first tees that would have been, would have happened and old Tom would have built it in that sort of 19th century period. Um, and it, sh it clearly shows on that whole hole, which leads into the 14th hole of the scene, that this, the procession is back and right. And all, and that's generally happened across the course. So as the ball's going further, there's a new tee and it's further back and it's further right. And, you know, that's one of the great things about the old course is we can use it. It's like what, looking at DNA, right? You know, this is how the game's developed and we can see it and, and uh, the proof of it here. That's such an interesting point that the expansion has happened back and right. Because if you think about it, the initial teeing ground for a hole would would be sort of in the in the intuitive spot, which would be near the hole of the previous hole. But if you need to expand the course, you can't go into the middle of the course. So you need to go back and right. And that changes some things about the holes, right? Yeah, it, it does. So we touched on it earlier again. So if we think about the 14th hole, if you were currently teeing off on the 13th green to head up to the 14th green, right, right in your eyeline are those beardies. Now, as you go back and right, they move off that center line. They move left. They don't move, obviously, but you move You move right, and so therefore they are left. And so you lose strategy. And, you know, you could look at the course and say, well, are there courses that, are there holes that have become better because of that? Are there holes that have become maybe less challenging? I mean, I would argue that the 14th is one that's become less challenging um because those beardies are simply not in play now one thing that's changed is the wall has become out of bounds 
1911. So, you know, there's obviously a consciousness taking play where they're saying, well, okay, well, people are playing, play is now taking this way. What can we do maybe to keep it? But, uh, you know, and I'm not, I'm not sure it's always easy to say this is better or worse, to have be black or white about it. I think there's examples where it is reasonably clear. That would be one. But there's others where it's it's some far more nuanced conversation. Uh, and, you know, are we in a better place than we were? I mean, uh, arguably, yes. Um, have we lost some of the experience of those original golf? Yes, possibly. Um, but we're, you know, it's, you put on, you know, we live in a modern world and we look at what they're doing. And, and I think what the book does is it really tries to follow the process. So if we look at the most recent Open Championship last year, incredible conditioning of the golf course, bar, fast, firm, dry conditions. I think Lynx Trust in the RNA just did a great job with the agronomy. But they're still looking to protect par, right? So they're still looking at this overall scoring. So we know historically that length has a fairly minor impact on scoring. So it hasn't mattered that the old course has got longer and longer. If you look at scoring over that 100-year period, it's decreasing. So it's probably kept it in check. You know, longer golf course kept it in check a little bit, but the old course has kept um, the score, the, the ability of the players who are getting bigger and stronger and hitting it further with better technology is still able to keep scoring going on a downward trajectory. So therefore, you know, the RNA and the Lynx Trust have looked at other ways. So, you know, it was the flattening of the bottom of the, of the bunker. So if you ran into a bunker, you might be up against an edge. It was the positioning of the hole closer to hazards. Um, so on the, as an example, and, and this is documented in the book, on the first green, we knew from the previous open that they had three greens quite close to the Swalk and Burn on uh on hole one and one of them was back one of the holes on one of the days i think round three was cut back left well it was a very similar uh, configuration last year 2023 three of them quite close to the burn and one further back but the distance that they were to the burn was almost half so instead of being 12 yards say or 13 yards from the burn they were six and seven yards so I think it's an indication that in order to try to protect some of the scoring, they've had to move the position to places where putting is a bit more difficult or there's more more risk, contest of risk, you know, back to that again. So yeah, I think we've I think the course is changing. And I and it's and I I, I stay away from this whole better or worse, because I think it's a I don't think you can look at it that way. But it's certainly a more nuanced conversation and the result you know, last year was uh, you know, fantastic. It was just incredible open. And we got everything we wanted out of it, right? Um, but, yeah, it's it's just a very di- different golf course than it was certainly in 1821. And and from what it was in the 1920s, you know, when, when yeah. uh, Alistair McKenzie drew that diagram of the 14th hole, probably from that old teeing position that you mentioned where uh, you can play out to the left, play out to the right, play down the middle, you have all these different options and that's not as much the case because of the new teeing position back into the right. Another thing that's emerged uh, at the old course more recently, really in the 21st century is the introduction of some rough 
right? And the the narrowing of some fairways with maintained rough. What do you make of that change? Now, I, I would describe you as very diplomatic and circumspect about better or worse, right? You you, you don't really get into those debates. From, from my perspective, I feel like the width of the old course that was discovered, the great discovery of, of the 19th century was that width and, and what it brought to the game. I don't know. It seems to me that the rough is taking a bit of that away. So, so, so let's talk about those um, non-fairway areas. And, and, I, and I think you have to include in that heather and gorse because those are that's flora that you're going to find along the way, depending on sure. what hole you're on. It generally farther uh, out, you know, you, right? But not always. But generally, but far, always, there, there's yeah. usually the maintained rough. And then yeah. Uh, yeah. past that, there will be the more natural grasses and stuff. Yeah, that's right. So, so you might encounter it along the way. But I would say there's been quite a change in that through the years. Um, the, you know, part of the uh, recent research I found, you know, old Tom closed the ninth and 10th fairways for about six months uh, and put a sign on the first tee green, I think, saying that they're closed while he took away all the heather and returfed the whole area. And so the, the you know the old course has continually changed, but I'd like to think that that those remain part of the foliage that's on the old course. I think it's important um, that there's a chance you're going to find a lie. Now we heather is difficult because you, so many people you know going around the old course of the fifty two thousand fifty five thousand rounds of golf a year plus caddies. You know you, you're getting a lot of wear. Um, so and heather doesn't stand up to that so well um one thing about the gorse that i've noticed is uh, there's always been gorse say behind the first green you know that's where when the washerwomen were there they would lay their the blankets and the sheets on top of the gorse to dry uh and earlier um earlier this year they took away kind of one of the last stands of gorse so i was actually a little bit sad to see that because i felt that there was a historic component to having some gorse in that area. Um, the rough itself does change, you know, it goes through different growth patterns. It'll be thicker and it'll be thinner. They've certainly tried to manicure it in certain places for an open championship. You know, one thing it does from a playing point of view, if you're in the rough, you lose some control. So if the flags are tucked behind certain humps or hollows, then, you know, the ball is going to come out hotter. So therefore it's harder to get it close to those spots. So it makes sense for the golf course to be, be prepared in a way that will add that element of uh, risk to um, for elite golfers at certain times of the year. What, but what, you know, I think, and it's sometimes overlooked. Um, I, I've got, I've got a son who's 13 and he's now played the old course a couple of times and occasionally we've gone out and we've seen other kids and one of the great, I mean, it's really fantastic that literally kids can play the old course, you know, not physically, but they can get around, you know, and actually play pretty well because there are quite wide fairways and they can get it running, uh, you know, still have to be a minimum handicap and all that sort of stuff. But this is not like, you know, you can go to some great championship courses. They're almost unplayable for normal people and certainly for kids who can only say carry it so far. But I, I just see it as one of the great virtues of the links is that it's playable for every level of golfer, um, age group wise, as long as there's a certain level of ability. And, um, and that includes the, the rough, the rough grasses and the heather and the gorse. So yeah, I, it's definitely a component. And I know that the RNA think really 
and, and, and Links Trust think really deeply about how they manage that. Um, but I think generally they've got it, they've got it right. You know, the other, if you're thinking about, and you're trying to make a comparison in your mind about the old courses and how it's changed, one of the things to think about is the, is the look of the bunkers. You know, they weren't revetted originally, right? They had these collapsed faces. And now you go there and, and every bunker, there's 110, half of which are named, but they're all revetted. And that's, you know, the, the bunkers have quite a visual, strong visual impact on people they take away they take lots of photos but they take away this image of what the bunkers were but that's not what they were you know you could ha you could have a conversation around about is that is that now what the gold course is is that just what we are now or could you ever reintroduce maybe a non-revetted face could it go that way where you have a combination i don't know i mean this are, these are debates that the rna links trust have to have but it's when you have it in a historical context to say look we haven't always been revetted it it definitely retains those faces. It offers a certain look, but is that are we now fixed in that position? You know, it's it's an interesting question. We're definitely less willing to consider drastic changes at courses like the old course than we were 150 years ago. Certainly, you read about some of the things that happened at the old course, especially during old Tom Morris's tenure there, and you just think wow, they were really free to go ahead and make some changes to build a new green that's now the 18th green to relocate entire holes, basically. There was a kind of uh, freedom of evolution that way that uh, for, for you know a variety of reasons we no longer seem uh, capable of. So I, I want to I ask you a question that you yourself ask toward the beginning of the book that is related to what we're discussing here. It's a question that I don't think you necessarily come down and answer by the end of the book, but it's, it's an interesting one to pose. And I wonder how you might go about answering it. The question is, is man or nature most responsible for the making of the physical features on the old course? You've just been discussing the bunkers, right? And, and how those evolved is a bit of a mystery, but now they're certainly more formalized than they once were. You have the contours of the fairways of the old course, which have been there for a long, long time. Nobody has necessarily intervened with those. But as your book documents, there's been quite a bit more intervention from the hand of man certainly more intervention than than people usually believe there has been at the old course. So how would you answer that question? Is man or nature most responsible? It's a, it's a great question, right? And the answer is it's changing. So if we go back to 200 years, the hand of man was very limited, I would have thought, in what the course is. And now it's, uh, it's greater you know, to a large extent, and it will continue to be greater. So we, if we go back to, you know, what, what are the elements? You know, there were bunkers there. Well, there were, there were sandy areas. And by the way, regarding bunkers, I don't have a view on it necessarily. But I think those, those are interesting conversations that need to be had within a historical context. So again, with what you're, what you're, what you're asking, it's, it's not quantifiable to say one or the other. It's a combination. So I would say at the moment, and every year we go forward, there is a greater element of human intervention in the old course. 
there has to be because they have to maintain certain areas and it might be just a little bit here and a little bit there but that's therefore a change from a say a natural if we just think about the broken ground the humps and hollows most of those we'd like to think are fairly natural and they're probably and we're probably right but every time something has changed it's another half a percent quarter of a percent one percent you know of the old course being touched or changed or in some way manipulated by human intervention or machine so you know at what point do you think we've gone too far you know you can never really wrap something in plastic like this you could never seal it and say that's it it's never going to change because it will there'll be an open they'll put up another tv tower somebody will have to put some foot stands in there for it to be it's another spade in the ground that's changing another little bit so, but I think that I like to think that generally the RNA and the Lynx Trust have the best interests of the old course at heart. That's the golden goose, right? Don't want to kill the golden goose. It is the way the ball runs on this broken ground. It's the it's the running ball. So I think they're aware, acutely aware, that they need to make sure that really things don't change. And there has to be a very good limit. The, the watermark has to be incredibly high for them to make a change, because not only is it important, more people are watching than ever before. I don't think, you know, even when I did my first edition, it was quite hard even to get aerial photographs. Now there's drone photography, everything, everything's mapped. You know, you could see if there was a, if there was a change and there'll be questions to be asked by, you know, who, those, who are, those who are in charge to say, to try and have to give very plausible reasons about why this is required. And I think previously there'd been talk about maybe doing this or maybe doing that. And for one reason or another, it had been turned down. And I think probably rightly so. Um, so I think, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to do any changes. But I think it's a myth if people think that everything out there is done by, you know, nature. Uh, increasingly, there is small bits that are changing. And I just hope we get to a point where, and, and, and this will come back to technology, and I'm, and I'm very supportive of the RNA's move to try and um, restrict the, the golf ball because it is places like St Andrews that I, t I think tend to suffer. So without that, some, some type of change to the golf ball and, and the equipment, then these places become increasingly at risk of, of further change. Scott, I think that's a good place to wrap up. I'm going through in my head all of the fascinating things in your book that we did not talk about, and I feel a little bit regretful about that, but I would definitely point people to your book. There's so much in there that we didn't cover in this episode, and uh, you know, it's a book that I uh, that's going to be on my shelf, and I'll, I'll pull it out frequently. Um, so could you tell people how they might get a hold of a copy of, of this book? Great. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not widely available. Uh, there's a couple of shops in St. Andrews, if you're visiting St. Andrews, or the easiest way is to order through my website, Scott, uh, scottmcphersongolfdesign.com. And I think what I want to say about the book is that it's, you know, it's a coffee table style book. It's full of great photography of the old course. But effectively, like you've found out, it's, it's a research book. You know, people can dip in and dip out. And uh, if you're making it, certainly if you're making a visit to St. Andrews, uh, it'll put you in good stead to learn how the old course has evolved over the last 200 years. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. That was Garrett Morrison. I'm Andy. Last time you're going to hear from me on this podcast. Um, this episode was edited and produced by Matt Ruches. Thank you, Matt. Quick reminder, while we're at the at the goal line here for gifts, a great gift is Club TFE. We um, are wrapping up the year. We've got a few more posts that will go up there. Um, we're going to have a little bit of a hiatus between Christmas and New Year's. But this is an awesome last-minute gift. You can go on our website and you can give it as a gift, or you can give it to yourself if you feel like giving yourself a gift. Um, go to thefriedag.com slash membership. You're going to get a couple articles a week on, um, on Club TFE. Um, you will get early access to events. You get discounts in the pro shop. Um, and hopefully a heap of new benefits next year. We want to continue to expand and grow this membership. Um, you know, add benefits for you guys as members. So visit thefriedag.com slash membership and you can uh, and you can sign up there. It's $120 for the year. Um, so thank you guys so much. And we will be back later this week with another episode of the Friday Golf Podcast, another episode of The Greatest Courses, unless something crazy happens. Um, and thanks again for all the support in 2023.